0: Where's my friend? Where's my friend who started the show with me uh, about a year ago and has been holding it down while I took my month hiatus Where's my friend? Are you there my friend
1: right
0: well, I can think of it whenever I hear Randy Newman in South Park saying he doesn't even try all that hard. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am the mandated reporter, and I am back, Mr. Mark Rattledge, and this is The Long Road to Ruin. Of course, my co-host, again, who's been holding it down for the last month with Mr. Robert Winfrey, who I'd like to take this moment to thank heartily for... Um, hosting this show, periodically hosting the four one ground and pound show. I I appreciate he did a bang up job and I appreciate the fact that he stepped into the breach for me. But again, my co host, Mr. Sean Comer, how do you do?
1: That was the single greatest theme song mashup this side of the rated RKO theme.
0: I am all about the E C. W. opening medley. <laughs> By the way, by the way, when we started this show uh, a year ago, and um, you know we, we were talking about, uh, I, I had sought you out. You know, I approached you. I, I had the uh, the flower in my hand, and I said, "Will you go to prom with me?" And you said, uh, "Yes," but I have to wear the tux. And I said, "That's fine. I'm fat. I like wearing dresses. It's fine." Um, no, what happened was, uh, I sought you out after you. Um, if I'd heard you on Jeremy Lambert's show. And I missed your whole thing on Batman, but the very first time I heard you was actually your review of The Dark Knight Rises. And to this day, I, I, I can't find it, but I want to find his episode where you talked about Batman for two hours. In any case, um, I heard you guys start... Do, I heard you do that, and then you guys started doing the Bad Movie Review Club, which I thought was hilarious and loved it. So you and I started corresponding on Twitter, and... Uh, I sought you out to do a movie podcast because I wanted a venue for talking about movies, and you had pitched this idea of doing franchises, and I thought, okay, that's great. That sounds like a fun idea. Um, Then you came up with the uh, title Long Road to Ruin. It was based off a Foo Fighters song, so where am I going with all of this? Uh, I was never a huge Foo Fighters fan. Say that three times fast. But... I have to say after a year of listening to our opening theme music I'm like, you know, rocking out with my cock out here every time those three, those couple of chords hit. I am a huge fan of that song now and I and I have you to blame. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, you're very welcome and you know those those opening chords every weekend. Again, I played this out because we come from a wrestling website, although I've not seen us posted on 411 quite some time. Um I'm starting to wonder, maybe I really did make somebody bad along the way.
0: No, I'm uh, lazy and just haven't done it. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> that,
1: that, that song, to me, for those of you who watched wrestling during the Attitude Era, that that is my sound of breaking glass every week where the light just goes on in the head and I just go to another place for the next two hours, whether I'm talking about how much I positively, unabashedly love a franchise or if I'm talking about something like Nightmare on Elm Street or Paranormal Activity or Hellraiser, uh, how much a franchise's middle parts let me down, uh, I just, I'm just having a blast. And I'm having a blast not being a reviewer, not being a critic, not trying to be an elitist. I don't even really think I'm all that snarky, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I just... I'm just really letting it fly one way or another with what I really think and it's good to have that uh, that two hours to really vent, let loose and vent and not have to worry about being artistic. So
0: well, I know for me, um I have a friend who's actually been on the show before, my friend Tom and him and I um I mean our conversations now encompass what's going on with your child, oh, what's going on with your child um and why do you hate your wife or why do you hate your uh, why do you hate your wife you know that sort of thing um hi Melissa no I I love my wife hello Bobby um but in any case uh you know we we talk about our families but but we spent I would say if you talk about an hour conversation between the two of us um maybe 10 to 20 percent of it is dedicated to things that actually matter in life you know real life people and uh, in, in our lives, the other eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent, we talk about breaking bad. We talk about movies. we talk I mean, we used to talk about wrestling, but he doesn't really watch it anymore. Um we'll still talk about MMA though he's sort of given up on it. the My point being that we would spend just hours upon hours delving into. I think I told the story on the air before about how uh, it was him and that group of friends that I met through him. That spent an entire like hour wait on get, trying to get on test track at Epcot, just trying to figure out what had happened to Neo and how The Matrix Three was going to go. So, uh, really yeah. long road to ruin is my is my canvas to sort of uh, paint on and direct all of that energy into a place where since I'm already doing I was already doing it with people in my actual real life I might as well try to find a venue for it on the internet. But real quickly, um, before we get into tonight's uh, trilogy, which is Toy Story, and I'll tell you all why I picked that one in just a moment. Um, If you follow me on Facebook, um, I put up the tentative schedule for how the rest of of this year is going to go and how we're going to open up next year. And the reason why I did it that way is, you know, we all know by now, uh, we're having a baby here in the old Rattledge family. N- number two, Schmageggie, as we call this uh, child, because we don't know the gender yet. Um, though, if it's a boy, I'm trying to push my wife for Thorn Oakenshield Rattledge. Um, if if we could get on that, folks, if we could start a Twitter poll, um, uh, you know, some sort of, sort of, just kind of Twitter bomb my wife and Facebook bomb my wife that we are all in favor of Thorn Oakenshield Rattledge, that would be fantastic. Now, anyway, you think that, that and that kid is going to end up being a basis for Nightwish. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's a little over the top? Maybe we should just drop the Oaken Shield. Now, did I
1: say that was a bad thing? I have to like Nightwish.
0: <laughs> okay. But well, I, no, I like but... too. Um, but the reason <laughs> the reason why was there was a lot of stuff we wanted to get done before I took off uh, for uh, full time parenthood for a little while. And I wanted to make sure it all got done, because, you know, Sean and I, um, this was a collaborative effort, we both choose franchises, we both have uh, certain things we want to get done, and it wouldn't be fair to Sean if I was just picking everything, and he, and he was sort of playing the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, I've already got one of those, his name is Robert Winfrey. <laughs> Anywho. I, I, uh, I don't know, though. Actually, though,
1: Robert is gradually becoming our Leno.
0: No, no, I always and that's the thing that that's the joke I always make with him. I, I on Sundays I call him the Jay Leno to my uh, to my Johnny Carson. But um, long story short, long road to ruin. Short. Um, yeah. I put up this I put up the schedule and I fucked up and I thought that Thanksgiving was a week earlier than it really is, which is why it's why we're only doing Toy Story in the month of November. And then the next two Tuesdays, I'm doing Metal Hammer of Doom with Robert Cooper. Um, we're going to do, we're going to review St. Anger. And then the following Tuesday, that's the last Metal Hammer of Doom for 2013. Because the, there are three weeks in December where we're going to just do back-to-back shows. And okay, it's so, gonna be.
1: so let me see if I understand this correctly, because this, um, and... Benjamin Cologne, I, I know you're listening to the show, or you will listen to it later. I know you usually do. Um, so just to be clear here, uh, so two Tuesdays in a row, you're going to be doing Metal Hammer of Doom. That's right. So that, We've got three weeks until we do Die Hard.
0: Die Hard starts December 3rd.
1: Okay, so this, is this our only show for November?
0: It is if you want to do something- um the week of thanksgiving uh without me, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. That would be three weeks from tonight
1: we'll we'll see. I might see maybe I'll talk to Robert and maybe we'll and maybe we'll cook something up but no actually that sounds that sounds pretty good uh the reason I say that is because um uh to kind of interrupt with my own announcement here, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh Benjamin had approached me uh, very, very kindly and really flattered me. might actually mention that he was a big fan of the show for a long time. And, by the way, sincerely appreciate that, buddy. Thank you. You're a gentleman and a scholar. I'm very humbled by that. Um, but also so happens that he is a wizard artist, too. Uh, he comes from the pedigree for those who missed last week's show, that he is currently the artist... On uh, Revolution of the Mass, the indie comic book that was co-created by uh, Louis L'Amour, Winkara uh, from that guy with the glasses, and I've seen. And he's also done uh, the odd title card here and there for a couple, for a couple of Channel Awesome people. I think he said he did one for uh, the Cinema Snob at one point. But anyway, rambling. Live, everybody. Um, Benjamin wants to be our title card artist Uh, as we kind of start gradually easing our way mercifully away from blog talk radio (laughs) and slowly toward the uh, springboard era over with Manic Expression once we get everything set with our procedures. Uh, He is going to be debuting his title card, which will include lovely caricatures of both Myself and the mandated reporter when we debut Die Hard on December third, and hopefully he's going to be sticking with us uh, as much as his schedule permits from there forward. So another sign that we've really come a long, long way in just twelve months.
0: Yep. So just to, so um, so everyone's clear and we can get into tonight's topic. Um, this. Uh, this is it for me and Sean for the month of November, because I will be on a Disney cruise and then Thanksgiving, uh, the week of Thanksgiving, which is the last week of the month. December 3rd is Die Hard Part 1. December 10th is Die Hard Part 2. December 17th is the Santa Claus trilogy. That's the end of 2013. We'll begin again in January uh, after the new year. Uh, just to make sure that this doesn't conflict with my daughter's birthday celebration, going to the Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique at Disney World. She's going to be three years old. We're going to get a dolled up, uh, like an Avon sales lady. That's what she's going to look like, um, in a princess gown. Um, but I digress.
1: Well, hey, for, for my 31st birthday, I'm giving myself the early gift of going to watch Day of the Doctor on the big screen at an AMC theater somewhere here in Phoenix, And then probably the week of my birthday sometime, just going off the grid for a couple of days and going to Sedona for a couple of days, hiking with my bestie Christina and maybe seeing if at some point um, if Scarlett could pull herself away from work, maybe I could talk her into meeting for a couple of drinks someplace. So I don't know, though. I don't know how that stacks up compared to going to Disney World.
0: We all got our own things, um, yeah. And then we'll be starting off with aliens. We're gonna actually do another two-hour-plus show to get it all in—all four Alien movies, um, not Prometheus, but it may get a mention. But all the all four Sigourney Weaver uh, Alien movies, two weeks, then Predator, then another two weeks, then Aliens versus Predator. It'll be one of the few shows where we only talk about two movies, but really just sort of just sort of cap put a cap on the whole AVP um series and then we'll move into highlander and then because i stupidly lost the bet with mr gavin napier of the casual heroes uh i bet that john cena would be headlining hell in the cell nope turns out it was yet another opportunity to fuck brian danielson up the butt Uh, (laughs) um the only way i can I, i can see it in my mind Randy Orton uh, and Brian Danielson were uh, at the top of the card on Hell in a Cell, which is what he predicted. So I let him pick the very last long road to ruin before I take a break, and he picked. He initially picked Witchcraft, and I'm like, "Look, you can't pick more than three movies, okay? I've only got one show here. We're not doing, you know, a, a marathon twelve-hour show." He was like, that "Okay, is witch- have a-
1: Witchcraft is double-digit goddamn movies."
0: Yeah. I don't think he understood what it was I was trying to tell him to do. Well,
1: and and also, as I've said a few times, I have a real thing about not wanting
0: to do stuff that
1: another critic has done and I really can't say anything original about. Right. And really, I'm not sure what else I could say about witchcraft up to this point, except for... Go to that guy with the glasses and watch the hilarious series that Obscure
0: Lupa has been doing. Um, yeah, I don't know anything about it, but I, but my thing was, look, three movies, buddy. That was the deal here. So he picked the, uh, the, the Evil Dead, which I've never watched Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, but I did go to the theater to see Army of Darkness, which I thought was pretty funny. So uh, I'm, anxious to, I'm anxious to see how the first two look.
1: Technically, that's four movies. Um, or or are we leaving off the most recent
0: one? We are leaving off the most recent one. You guys can mention it if you want um, as a point of comparison, but we are talking about the three movies proper.
1: Well, see, actually, that's probably a pretty good idea because the most recent news to come out with that one. For those of you who don't know, the initial plan was that the most recent Evil Dead was not a remake, was not a reimagining. It's an alternate timeline or not an alternate timeline, but a, um, perhaps a parallel timeline would be the better word. And the initial plan that they had was they were going to make that. Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were going to make up, go off and make their Army of Darkness sequel. Meanwhile, Teddy Alvarez and his screenwriter for Evil Dead were going to go and make their Evil Dead sequel, and then they were going to culminate the whole franchise by combining the two timelines into one movie. Kind of like Star Trek Generations, except good. Probably. That is no longer happening because Fetty Alvarez and his writer, I forget what his name is, have exited the project. So there's now doubt cast on whether that's happening at all. So actually, it's probably a good thing we're dropping that and just talking about the first three.
0: Yeah. Last uh, thing, and then, and then I want to get, get into this now. Uh, Jed Gatsby, who uh, is also on the Casual Heroes, had put out there, "You guys should do the Fast and Furious." Um, this was before Gavin came up with Evil Dead. He said, "Why don't you guys do the Fast and the Furious?" Here's why I hey, want then, to
1: do the Fast. Suggest that for some time.
0: Well, you know, we've been talking about wanting to do it, and I've actually never sat and watched any of these, so. Um, it's on my list. I want to do the, I want to do the Fast and the Furious. Here's why I'm holding off. And also why I'm holding off on a lot of the Marvel movies, um, Mm -hmm. Marvel studio movies, you know, like the X-Men stuff we could probably get away with doing, though even though now it's starting to go in the other direction. I don't want to do franchises that are presently active. Um, if they can be helped, you know, it's why I haven't. It's why I haven't pushed to do Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, in case, you know, in case like paranormal activities, you know, there was a lot to say about it. So, you know, and who the hell knows what they were going to do with the fifth one. So I was okay with that. Um, And I didn't know enough about it to say no at the time. But I'm trying to, if it can be avoided.
1: It's on the way.
0: What was that? Well, that
1: fifth fucking movie in that series is on the way. Yeah. You didn't get enough from me the first time, did you? (laughs) <laughs> Did you? Did it didn't reach deep enough into my soul. Son, don't hunt what you can't kill.
0: I can only I can only say to you, Mr. Comer, that maybe that this will be much like the uh, Star Trek movies where um five was so bad that uh you know, six comes out and sort of apologizes for five. Maybe we'll be in a situation where paranormal activity, five will apologize for four and it will explain why Toby can't get his motivation correct. Who the hell knows?
1: non he Call me cheap Joseph because I will bury you.
0: <laughs> In any oh, case, okay. I'm, I'm hey, trying.
1: Actually, actually, hang on. May I make a brief case for actually why I'm really interested to go ahead
0: and do Fast and Furious? Even though I, I see that, well, hang on, before you say that, they're already shooting another one. Same thing with Pirates of the Caribbean. I have been dying to talk about this, and at least I can wrap my head around just doing the first three movies because that was a complete story, kind of, sort of, and fourth started off on a new line. But I, they are like, already shooting a new one with Ronda Rousey. I mean, I, I just – go ahead. You, you say what you're well, going to
1: say.
0: Here's the difference, though.
1: In the case of the Pirates of the Caribbean, we have something we've
0: covered a number
1: of times on this show, and we're going to probably cover a number more times. <laughs> And that is, we have a franchise that has been dragged on far past its logical conclusion. It should have just gone ahead and ended with the third movie. That should have been it. But no, they just
0: keep making money. So, More dinosaurs. Well, oh, so
1: Bingo. There you go. And in this case, I can't even fire back with Saban Suplex the Train. <laughs> now, in the case of Fast and the Furious, though, here's what interests me about that. And we'll go more into depth when we eventually do this franchise, because I'm going to keep lobbying until we do it. First movie, I actually like it. I actually like it. It's It's a likable, guilty pleasure movie. I'll sit down and I'll watch it. It's It's Vin Diesel in the kind of role that Vin does best. And it's one where he doesn't really have to work all that hard. It's kind of fun. It's implausible. Yes, it has its moments when it's stupid. But it's watchable. The second one, okay, that was the sign of trouble ahead. The third (laughs) one, you know, the one that, neither Paul Walker nor Vin Diesel wanted anything to do with, except for Vin doing a brief cameo at the end. Okay, Tokyo Drift was horrendous. Then they go and get the band entirely back together for Fast and Furious. That kind of brings it back to the spirit of the first one. Then comes Fast Five, and all of a sudden it's this total stylistic departure And it goes from being this glossy movie about street racing to being kind of a gritty, I don't want to say gritty necessarily, I don't know if that's the right word, a kind of hard-hitting heist movie. Uh, Like I
0: say, these become capers, don't they? Ultimately, this becomes a a cops and robbers story once they brought The Rock in.
1: Right, but the amazing thing is, despite the fact that it was a complete departure, Amazingly, it actually worked. And the movie started getting better. Fast Five was good. Okay, the sixth one, okay, yeah, that maybe wasn't quite as good as, good as Fast Five, but it still kind of continued in that step in the right direction. I can't think of too many franchises where I've gone, good, suck, suck, meh, Wow. Mhm.
0: I've said this about a, about another franchise in the past, where they have. You, sometimes you have to sit down and figure out what works. Why does this movie work? And make that your focus, as opposed to more dinosaurs, or let's get this actor in there, or you know, whatever nonsense that these studios uh, come up with to, to to draw out their franchise. You really you have to go back to. What is the what is the thing that motivates people to come see these movies in the first place? As long as you've got Vin Diesel driving fast cars, you've got you've got something there. That's why people go watch them. Now, what's now what's he going to do besides drive the fast cars? That becomes the question. And so they probably made uh, an ex- obviously because they have rejuvenated the franchise. They've made an excellent choice in making it a cops and robbers story with fast cars. Well,
1: well, and you've also made it about. Vin Diesel versus Dwayne Johnson. Sure. Which you know what? Quite frankly, everybody out there knows when it comes to action, I'm an old school guy. I like it authentic. I like it practical. I like for it I, I like to really feel every punch. And you need actors with presence to do that. Yeah. And Vin Diesel and The Rock are two of the only guys I think that could go head to head with that kind of male action lead from almost any era and hold their own. Whether we're talking about old school Sean Connery and Lee Marvin, right up through Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Lundgren, Snipes, Van Damme, any of them. Just, there are a couple of throwbacks. And that, I think, is what makes the the movies fun to me. But, I mean, we'll get to those eventually. I'm going to keep lobbying for it. But, again, the difference is also that the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they just keep getting more convoluted. But unlike, (laughs) say, a video game franchise like Metal Gear Solid, there's no point at which you go, either I'm going crazy or this actually makes sense. No, it just keeps progressively making less sense.
0: So um, I think what we're going to do when I come back, the first one, there, there are two that I've wanted to hit when, when I come back, um, I want to start getting into some other, some other, I want to start getting outside of my own, uh, comfort zone. Um, right. so when I come back eventually next year in some, somewhere around the June era, uh, June month chronicles of Riddick. Oh, yes.
1: All so, of the socks. Yes. I love the Riddick movies.
0: Now, are we going to throw in there this dark fury one? Or is, we're just going to do Pitch Black, Chronicles of Riddick, and Riddick. Hmm. Think on that.
1: That, Think. that. that, yeah, that's a good question. Because actually, my gut is telling me just to stick with the three main, with the three main ones.
0: That that makes sense to me. The other one I want to do is the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Oh God in heaven! <laughs> All right, so that's what you have to look forward to when I come back. But I haven't even left yet. Box. Box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this being the holiday season, you know, we just did an entire month on the Rattler and Broadcasting Network on horror. Robert Winfrey was pulling double duty. He had his "Everyone Loves a Bad Guy," where he touched on uh, every last bit of horror. And boy, did I learn a lot from uh, from YouTube fellas. Um, but he also stepped in here and did uh, two shows on the Hellraiser franchise, which um, I, I have to say, uh, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to sit down and watch any of these, but you certainly piqued my interest with your discussion, so good job there. But I kind of want to clean the slate here as we move into the holiday season. Uh, this, of course, is the you know, Thanksgiving. This is the, the beginning of the Christmas season, which actually starts sometime in August, apparently. if You go into some of these stores where they're selling Christmas trees and shit. Um, but uh, way back, almost 20 years ago now... Um, November twenty second, nineteen ninety five, a uh a studio, a company put out, um well before uh they they put out Toy Story, they started with these little animated shorts to um promote their computers. And the company I'm talking about is Pixar. And Disney approached them based on the strength of their animated short Tin Toy, which was an award winner back in nineteen eighty eight. Uh approached them about putting out a feature-length picture uh, using computer animation. And the product that they came up with was Toy Story. And Toy Story was so goddamn successful. It's one of the most successful animated features of all time. It actually spawned two theatrical releases. So, um, you know, in the spirit of the holiday season... And, try and moving the uh, the needle away from the horror and the graphic into something a little bit more family-friendly, I thought we would spend uh, the rest of the hour of this show or more uh, talking about the Toy Story trilogy. And and it really is just going to talk about it. Normally, I get, we get deep into film analysis and sort of look at what went wrong here and everything else. This is one of the rare instances where nothing's wrong with this trilogy. There's nothing bad about it. It's about as good... Uh, a series of movies as you're going to get including how it how it ends i mean every any one of these movies could have ended the series uh perfectly well but the way toy story three ends as the you know with the descent into hell and you know and the last minute save um it's probably as the red letter media guys say film is supposed to make you feel something and if you aren't on the verge, if not like me, full-blown, you know, just an ugly, crying mess, then you are clearly either a robot, an LMD, or a Vulcan. Or you're dead. Uh, one, one, of those, one of those choices. Um, I want to say, as uh, we get into this, that the other reason why I chose Toy Story, because initially I'd gone with Terminator, um, but and as I said at the top of the podcast, I really enjoy talking about film. Whether or not it was on a podcast or not, uh, I just like, I enjoy talking about this stuff. And I enjoy sitting down and watching movies and thinking about them and, you know, kind of letting my imagination run away with itself and thinking about ways that um, you know, more movies could be made or how a movie could be made better. It's what I invest at least some of my brain power in. The downside to doing this podcast, and one of the only downsides, is that it means that I have to hold myself up in another room watching movies to prepare for a podcast. Because I rewatch all the movies before I talk about them. And that usually means not spending time with my family. Because when you're talking about paranormal activity, or Scream, or, or even the Mariachi trilogy, or um, The Man With No Name, it's hard to watch any of those with the two-year-old. You know, wanting you to watch, wanting you to put on Peter Pan, which I've now watched about a dozen times in a row. Because, um, you know, kids like to watch the same thing over and over and over again. Or the Barbie movies. Or even if she doesn't want to watch something, she wants my attention. She wants to play, or, or not play, as it were, Candyland. Or play with the princesses that she has. So, And then there's my wife, who also wants my attention. Oddly enough, contrary to popular opinion, she likes me. So for um, the last year I've had to haul myself up in another room watching movies and then kind of checking on my family in between flicks. And I just, just once wanted to sit down with my family and prep the show with them together. Uh, fortunately the kid didn't make it to the third one. <laughs> she she was nap time and she didn't wake up again. She uh, she stayed she stayed asleep. But she watched the she marathoned the first two with me and then my wife and I watched the third one and then like I said at the end of it uh, and I'll, we'll talk about why in a little bit. Uh, both of us just incomprehensible, just just crying and carrying on, and blah, you know. So, obviously, these are deep emotional movies that mean mean, mean a lot to me, and mean more now that I'm uh, I'm a parent. So that's kind of my take on it, my introduction of these things, Sean. Um, what? what is your connection to the toy story trilogy to the toy story trilogy? What, um, how did you kind of come to these movies and what's your thoughts on it?
1: Well, uh, you know, before I get into that, um, I'm glad you got family time to enjoy these, these heartwarming, perfect little jewels of cinema. Cause they, they really are, they really are three absolutely perfect films. And it's so rare that we get to talk about three absolute perfect movies and it's rare we ever will get to again. I, on the other hand, had one of the most pants shittingly terrifying experiences I have ever had watching these movies. Oh, do tell. Here's something you have to understand about this, guys. Um, I don't have an unlimited budget to buy DVDs. And with the death of brick-and-mortar stores, I'm really at a little bit of a loss sometimes for a place to go track them down and actually get actually rent physical copies. So I have to raise the Jolly Roger and resort to downloading sometimes. I don't keep them. I don't make copies for friends. Typically I watch them for the show. I do my research and once the show's over, unless it's something I really like, I delete them. So in this case, uh I had to spend my week waiting for my Toy Story downloads to finish. Well, today they got done, and with just about a dead even six hours for me to watch the entire series before we went on the air. I, uh, I fired up the first movie, and I was reminded of one of the great pitfalls of downloading. Bad Rips. Oh no, the video quality was fine. It was a perfect quality Blu-ray rip. It was the audio. It was like it was audio engineered by Dead Mouse. <laughs> and I, wa- I want you to take a moment and picture something. I want you to picture every wonderful line of this movie. And really, they are extremely well-written movies, as we'll get into very shortly. And how how pitch-perfect everything is delivered by the likes of Tim Allen and Tom Hanks and John Ratzenberger and Don Rickles and Annie Potts and right on down the line, the absolute wonderful voice cast. I want you to picture all that, and then I want you to imagine a table read of this script as performed by the Borg, the Cybermen, and Starscream with special (laughs) guest appearances by Tobin Bell as (laughs) Jigsaw. Something. I don't know what happened with that audio quality. Randy Newman sounded like his songs were being performed by the Ninth Circle of Hell Tabernacle Boys Choir. (laughs) Folks, I kid you not, especially when it got to the section when... Woody has been tossed upon the barbecue and he has to make Sid think that all of his sins against playthings are being visited upon him at once. I have sat through all nine Hellraiser movies, four Paranormal Activity movies, and a fucking Asian compilation movie that is led off by a woman who remained young by eating dumplings, stuffed with chopped-up, aborted fetuses. That is one of the single most terrifying things I have ever heard. <laughs> I so plain nice. Sense. Okay, I can let that slide, because obviously one, obviously it's not not only not of this earth, but it's something that's supposed to be terrifying. It's so obvious, and, yeah, it kind of takes away from it actually really being all that scary. On the other hand, you've taken something with the pure innocence and charm of Tom Hanks and made me want to scream, demon, demon, kill it with fire. (laughs) I I kid you not, after this show is done, sometime later tonight, I am going to take this rip. I am going to edit that one clip, and I'm going to put that up on the Facebook page. You will see what I mean. Pants shittingly terrifying.
0: Oh, that's fantastic!
1: Experience, but prior to that, um, my experience with this was I I didn't go see them actually. One correction: one of them I did see in theaters. I did see Toy Story Three in theaters um, with my then fiance and her harpy gorgon crossbreed of a mother. Uh who actually created one of the funniest moments as we were leaving as we were leaving the theater when uh she happened to see a little boy walking by with an action figure pointed to him and exclaimed, "Oh look, he's got a little Woody." Was <laughs> the first time she said something unintentionally stupid, it was just one of the rare times the bitch said it and it was funny. Um uh, but now actually I was kind of brought to Pixar in general though by my then fiance because to her credit she is a veritable animation lexicon especially when it comes to Pixar. So I had seen Toy Story before before that but not for many moons I hadn't seen Toy Story 2 yet but that was kind of what really brought me about about it was the fact that she and I were so joined at the hip all the time that if she liked something, I was bound to an ultimatum, and that was I better either learn to like it or I better learn to endure it. Fortunately, this was one, point, one time when actually she had pretty good taste. Um, and I'm not a parent in all likelihood, to be perfectly honest, Probably never will be. I, never, I don't like to say never. But these are the kind of movies that even if you're a single guy, my, single guy like myself who doesn't come across as somebody who's going to be big on heartwarming animation, you just kind of can't help but be
0: captivated by it for a plethora of reasons. Let me, let me stop you there for a second. Let's just talk about Pixar, the studio for a moment because um Pixar's actually what you, and 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 you really said it there it's they're not just making uh, animated movies for children. Um, these appeal to adults and children alike. They seem to have mastered the art of finding a balance between getting uh adults to come watch these things while still making it palatable for children. I mean, they re- somehow or other they're one of the few entities out there that really managed to nail it. I mean, we're talking about this, my wife and I, uh, we took Lily to go see Freebirds, which is the story about how the turkeys go back in time to save turkeys from Thanksgiving, and, um, which was funny. And it was, dumb it it was a dumb concept. Excuse me? Okay.
1: Folks, you've know, you got to forgive me about something for a second. Despite the fact that I'm a big movie fan, I actually don't get out to theaters all that often, both for lack of time and being on a serious budget. Uh, so sometimes a movie comes out and I'll hear vaguely about the title or since um, I'm a frequenter of cinemasnob.com. Um, I'll check out Brad's midnight screenings to get, a, to get a pretty funny review of it occasionally if it's something that I have no intention of seeing. But then I hear about a movie like this and I just think,
0: if that made well, when your audience is children and more specifically the parents who bring children to movies i mean i I have a two year old and look you know just like my dad my dad was not into sports, we were a movie and mu- we were a music and movie family um, and so you your ch- your children will do what you do until they develop their own um, you know taste and rebel against you. Uh, so as much as I'm a movie person, so will my daughter be, and she, and she really is now, you know, she watches the Tinkerbell movies and the Barbie movies, you know, she watches what she likes, so, um, when, when your choices are, uh, Freebirds, and then I think the next one that's coming out, oh, the next one is the new, is the new Disney one, um, you know, where there was Tangled, now there's the Ice Queen, but instead of calling it the Ice Queen, they're calling it Frozen. Um, this is what I can bring her to in order to get her out to the movies. You know, she ain't quite ready. She she ain't quite ready for the Chronicles of Riddick. You know what I mean? So, um, no. and I got to get her ready for Star Wars. You know, Star Wars comes out in 2015. She must be ready. Okay, do you understand? I'm taking her up the stairs. Me and Grandma are taking her up the stairs because she has to get ready. No, um... <clears throat> pardon me. Got Lost in Paranormal Activity 3 there for a moment. Um, Sorry. <laughs> So we you! Took, don't, will it be enough? <laughs> so uh, we took her to go see Freebirds, and one of the things that my wife and I were saying was it, it, it was one of the few non-Pixar movies that we've seen where they got the balance right between appropriate for kids and funny, you know, funny and entertaining for adults. Because there are some children's movies where, as an adult, you're just like, this is the longest 90 minutes of my life. I'd rather be at the dentist. You know, there's just, they're so lame, they're so, they're so uh, saccharine, you know, and they beat you over the head. So some, some examples of movies that I have thought were terrible, pretty much all the Dr. Seuss ones, all the new Dr. Seuss movies that were supposed to be for children ranged from okay to suck. The Lorax, uh, being, the Lorax being one of the ones where I understand the original story of the Lorax was, you know, for God's sake, save the trees. But this was so like, ham-handed. I mean, like, I tried to get my kid to watch this, and I was like, you know what, I don't blame you for thinking this is terrible.
1: I, I didn't mind The Grinch. It was, oh, no. It, Ugh. It, oh, oh, don't get me wrong, it it has its flaws, and nothing, nothing compares to the original. But, of on not. its own, I don't mind it.
0: Yeah, I, I don't like the way they've handled the Doctor Zeus uh, live-action movies. But it, getting oh, back, yeah,
1: to yeah, Cat, Cat in the Hat and The
0: Lorax—oh, another story entirely. <laughs> um, so getting, getting back to the point, um, there were funny enough jokes, and there were there were there were some bits in there that were definitely meant for your adult audience. There were times, Sean, in that movie where I'm the only one in the theater laughing. They were, I can't remember what the line was, but there was one thing that oh, he, they're standing outside of a of a fence. Now it's a, now it's a transparent fence. It's it's a basically it's a it's a mesh wire fence, and they're outside of it, and then they get inside of it, and the and the turkey played by Woody Harrelson says, <laughs> "So this is what it looks like on the inside," and it was a throwaway joke, but I laughed my ass off, and I'm the only one in the theater that was clearly meant for adults. Um, i you know, sorry. Kids,
1: did you say Turkey played by Woody Harrelson? Yes. I suddenly
0: want to see this. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he plays he plays a big strong turkey. Um
1: I, I suddenly want to see this and I want to riff in zombie land lines.
0: <laughs> so to get to get to the point, um Pixar and, and I wanna make sure I said this on this podcast uh so let me let me get this out. Pixar really did ride that line between almost too much for kids. And probably, you know, some people have, like, talked about The Incredibles, for example, as being a very dark movie. Folks, mm-hmm. actually, let me let me dial it back a second, because what I'm about to tell you doesn't, shouldn't follow me starting off with folks and then going into one of my rattled rants. Let me dial it back to a fairly somber tone, and I'm going to be, I'm going to level with, the audience here and maybe this might be too much for those listening who just wanted to hear a fun discussion of toy story but i'm just going to come out and say that uh my wife got pregnant with our very first child january of 2010 i believe and by march we lost that baby um we went on our delayed honeymoon we are we we got married in 2000 october of 2009 um she was pregnant by January of 2010, lost baby number one uh, in March, went on, the, went on the cruise, came back. She was pregnant again. Nine months later, Lily was born because, you know, life worked out that way. And that's why one of the reasons why Liz, Lily is such a treasure to both of us. But you'll never we'll never forget the loss of that first baby. And, I, you know, I actually remember the day that she came home and she'd lost the baby the previous night. But um, the hospital that we brought my wife to didn't want to admit out loud that there was no more baby and just sent us home. And then the next day she went to see the Wait, doctor, and the doctor like, confirmed, yeah, I don't want to get into it. But you know she's bleeding like a stuck pig. We bring her to Brandon Hospital in uh, Hillsborough County, Florida. They, they, they clean her up. They, they do some tests. They go, okay, you're, you're good to go. Go home. Go see your doctor in the morning. My wife goes oh, home yeah. and then – go ahead.
1: Uh, I was just going to say thank, thank you for saying the I don't want to get into it part because I briefly had a moment where I uh, – in my incredulity, I almost forgot that I was on a live podcast that others are actually listening to.
0: Yep. So, so turning, the, turning the page here, we go, she goes to the doctor. I get a phone call at work. Baby's gone. I left work, I went home, I put on Legends I put on a Legends of Wrestling round because the last thing I would do was wanted to think about this. And rad, I'd rather watch um uh what's his I'd rather watch Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler argue about the NWO. And then she came home and I cried for a long time. I could not keep it together. She's the one that lost the baby, but I was a mess. And a couple of months later, so again, by this point, we, go on our, you know, we get over it, we go on the honeymoon, she gets pregnant again, and I'm a paranoid mess for about the first three to four months of this thing, uh, because I'm afraid we're going to lose the baby again. And stupidly, <laughs> in retrospect, I suggest we watch Up. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> now you understand why I told you that story. And so this is what I mean. And if you haven't watched Up, Up is about a uh an elder man who's, you know, who's um who goes kind of goes on this uh adventure um by attaching a bunch of balloons to his house as it floats away. I don't remember what the whole setup was, but essentially he, takes, he, he makes his house a floating uh, fortress, and he goes into the desert and goes on an adventure. And it's a fun movie, but the opening minute of this thing is about as heartbreaking, heart-wrenching as anything ever captured on an, an animated film. And when you've just lost a baby in a six-month period prior to that, we, I don't, we almost didn't watch the movie. Both of us just sitting in bed watching this, and we have no idea what we're about to see. I, again, thought it was a, just a story about a you know, cranky old man and a fat Cub Scout. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so did kind of I, kind of, actually. Yeah. Um. So I was like, I'm, I, I'm, I, it's not even a movie I, I really wanted to see. It was like, oh, well, I'll check this out, see what it's all about. Not something that really piques my interest, but I'll give it a shot. And oh, my God. They do kind of like the beginning of the Incredible Hulk pilot, where um, there's like a tight iris around and it's sort of grainy about and it's and it's presented as sort of flashback images uh, I've, t- I've talked about this before uh, when we talk about the hulk you know about a man in love and it shows you all of the key points of this relationship and how wonderful it is and they do the same thing with up it's about this man he's a balloon salesman and this woman, and they meet, and they fall in love, and either she can't have a baby or she loses a baby or something like that. And that's – forgetting about my own personal woes for a moment, that's heavy stuff no matter who you are. I mean, I don't know how anyone yeah. watches that first part of Up and, and manages to make it into the next part of the movie in one stop. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I was going to say, I mean, my, my experience didn't have – i won't even begin I, I i won't i won't belittle what you and Melissa went through, and God bless you both for that by trying to compare my experience to yours but I kinda had my own things going on too when I saw it that really made it a movie that I didn't entirely enjoy watching, and that honestly. I don't know what it is about that moment. Because really, if I were to really break it down, for the most part, it doesn't compare to a lot of the other fights and the ugly moments that my then fiance and I had had at that time. But something about that first that first tone of the movie and the fighting we just had and where our relationship was. It just really put a damper on what otherwise, I have to admit, really was a beautiful story and made it one that I, one of the few movies that I would actually say that I would consciously avoid seeing again just yeah. because of, of everything that it reminds me of. I certainly wouldn't break down and cry about it because it's not a relationship that I miss being in, but I know that it would take me back to what I was feeling at the time. Right. And it would just bring all that to light, and the last thing that I want to do is relive in too much detail what that, everything that that period was and everything that that I've spent years recovering from after it. So... and that's
0: that's sort of the weird thing about Pixar is on the surface, it's like, oh, these are fun children's films i mean let, let let's get to the central topic here. You're talking about toy story, you're talking about you know themes of potential abandonment, displacement, you know you're talking about a character played by Tom Hanks uh Woody, who is a toy cowboy and you know and and his god essentially his you know Andy, who is his child and you know into a toy. Children are, are, are their gods. The, you know, this is who gives them their purpose. This is who gives them their meaning. It is a toy's purpose to be played with by a child. That is the you know one of the central premises of the movie. And in short order, well, you know, while he is sort of the the, the praised one, the, the the most prized toy of Andy's, he is summarily and um really, at the time, almost uh, unemotionally displaced. And what that does to Woody, and how he reacts to it. Now, you you could have gone a million places with this, but remember, it's a fucking kids' movie, so you can't go too far. But, I mean, if you look at some of the things Woody does to Buzz, never mind sort of the funny interplays between, you know, and we'll talk about Buzz with his own issues in just a moment, you know, thinking he's really a... um, a, a real life space ranger, but um you know he he's trying to get him pushed into a place where Andy can't get to him, so Andy will forget about him um you know he it drives him to do some when, when you think about it he's the hero of this thing but it but but to be displaced in the eyes of one's own God causes him to make some very drastic decisions uh very out of character things that get that then when get him the ire of all the other toys, led by an awesome Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head. By the way, Don Rickles makes these movies for me, and little things oh. like walk, walking past the. I don't know if people uh, who aren't from 1930 remember who Don Rickles is, but sure. Don Rickles Don Rickles was an insult comedian, and he would refer to people as hockey pucks. So when he walks yeah. past. So when he walks past it's like, What are you looking at, you hockey puck and that's your fucking hockey puck right there that drugs at him? Oh God. I, I always laugh at that.
1: Would you uh well, would you mind if I kinda of wax
0: a, a little bit
1: a little bit philosophical for a second about kind of what I think some of the geniuses of Pixar? And I'm gonna have a lot of these points. I I hope you don't mind and I hope you all don't mind if we go a little bit long because of it. Um, yeah, go
0: ahead.
1: We got to wrap is, this up.
0: By, we got to wrap this up though by 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I got to get to work. Um, <laughs>
1: the thing about this is, and this is where Pixar really blends it. One of the places where it blends it pretty well. And I'll get to other areas as we go along because I've already kind of got them in mind. Is the fact that they manage to make things silly and warm enough, and kind of quotable enough for the kids. But even the more the, the jokes that are aimed to keep the adults in kind of a comfort zone and hold their attention and kind of help them not just get through the movie the way some other movies will insert adult humor in there to just kind of placate the parents who are amiably tolerating it for their kids. They put stuff in there for the adults to actually be engaged by it and to actually enjoy it things like the hockey puck joke, adults get it because they get the reference, because Don Rickles, because it's familiar to them. It's it's kind of like a lot of the humor in, uh, in the first couple Shrek movies. Well, actually, any of the Shrek movies, let's be honest. The fact is, it's the kind of thing where they manage to also just time it so well and execute it in such a way that kids see it and they don't know why, but in that intangible way that good comedy has with timing and flow and rhythm, they still manage to find it funny because the adults are finding it funny because of the reference. The kids are finding it funny because somewhere slightly off screen, um, Mr. Potato Head just called some just called somebody a hockey puck, and there's the cute little hockey puck, and just so it kind of squeaks and shrugs a little bit. And so the kids will find even find that part funny. It's, it's, it's so rare. It's so rare that movies can do that, and actually it's something Pixar does really well that Disney's traditional animation doesn't always. Disney's traditional animation sometimes... Will try so hard to be toyetic and really going out of its way to trying to be kind of forcefully progressive that that kind that kind of inclusiveness kind of gets a little bit a little bit lost and a little bit glossed over by how much of Disney is sizzle and how little of it is steak in Pixar's case they can take something like that and really blend it so that both sides will really dig the exact same joke. And sure. somehow somehow, it manages to work. And the only other movies I can think of that really did that and did it that well are, well, the first two Shrek movies.
0: Well, I mean, look at Finding Nemo. You know, Finding Nemo has some really, really funny stuff. I know I know, a lot of people aren't fans of Ellen DeGeneres, which I don't really get why. Um, I think Ellen DeGeneres is hysterical. I've watched a lot of her stand-up. She's one of the few female comedians that doesn't rely on angry, man-hating chick humor. Um, and so what's left is some really genuinely funny stuff. And her portrayal of Dora, uh, the... Um, short-term memory uh, (laughs) short-term memory uh, handicapped fish is hysterical Um, it's one of the it's one of the funnier parts of Finding Nemo when you look at that movie and the kinds of things that it's about uh, I mean I was actually reading the story of Lily the other night and I I had forgotten that there's a scene where where the father thinks (laughs) fucking Nemo is dead I mean, a little, you know, in one way, a heartbreaking thing for for children to watch is a father beside himself, thinking his son is gone. Yikes! So, um, and I haven't watched Cars, so I can't comment on that. But a lot, a lot of the Pixar movies really dealing some heavy stuff and it, and the tone was set with Toy Story where they're able to sort of deal with very adult themes and, and and ideas but they're not presented in a dumbed down way they're just presented in a way that are that that both uh parents and children can eat at the same table um, and and it makes for a much more enjoyable experience that's what's why I went through this process of marathoning them with my family is i wanted to see if you know, I wanted to see what kind of an experience that would be, and, and it ended up being a positive one. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about. I want to get your reaction to that. You know that that um, what he sort of represents. That, you know this idea of um, you know an entity who uh, li- lives for this you know godly figure, and then um, is, and then is displaced. You know, some might say, "Oh, that's that's a little that's a little bit of a reach." But I don't know how else to describe it when you consider what you see in the movie. So, just let's let I want to get your reactions to Woody, and then I want to talk about uh, Buzz, and we have to get into um, what the hell is the character's name? Um, the neighbor kid. I just oh, it. Shit. Sid, yeah, I want to talk about Buzz and I want to talk about Sid and then I want to get into Toy Story too. So, um, just your reactions to Woody and how and his, and um, obviously Tom Hanks plays him quite well. I, I don't think we, I don't think there's any discussion necessary of the of the, of the uh, acting in this movie, but uh, just how the character is written. Some of your thoughts.
1: You know, it's really
0: not very often that Tom
1: Hanks gets to play a legitimate jerk and but in this case it's somebody who doesn't really realize that he's being a jerk uh, he's somebody who really thinks that it's his place to look out for the well-being of everybody else around him I don't think he uh, calling him kind of a god figure is, is a little bit of a stretch that's Andy more than anything else that's what um, I said Andy is the god Oh, okay, I misunderstood you. Okay. Um, but the thing that I like about the thing that I like about Tom Hanks is he doesn't disappear into a role the same way that a lot of characters actors character actors do, and not the same way that it's Johnny Depp mincing about in fifteen pounds of caked-on makeup or you know, to a much more impressive extent, someone like Robert England or Lon Cheney Jr. who's acting through the makeup or anything like that. However, what Tom Hanks does really well here is he shows in one of the few voice performances he's ever done that even when it's just his voice, he can manage to completely disappear into a character and make you forget that you're watching or listening to Tom Hanks even though he's obviously very recognizable and he really brings every line to life and and like a lot of great voice actors, like a lot of great career voice actors he manages to really feel the character uh, and it's not that it's not that easy. There are a lot of people that when they do a voice, it's really not that impressive because you still know who you're, li-
0: who you're listening
1: to. Sure. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you brought up cars, okay? It's not Lightning McQueen. It's a car with Owen Wilson's brain, which means that I want to run it into a brick wall.
0: Or oh, even better, Larry the Cable Guy. That wasn't, well, that, that,
1: whatever, oh, I guess I, his
0: name is Mater. That's not Mater. That's Larry the Cable Guy, the tow truck.
1: Well, yeah. And, and you know, that's, and again, that, that's not acting right down to the fact that with every line he delivers, even just like his stand-up routine, Larry sounds perpetually amazed that anybody actually finds him
0: funny. And and just, just a it, quick it, aside. Everyone tells me that that that, that has hurt me like at parties or, you know, at dinner gatherings. And I and I, as my wife said, when we did the Twilight podcast, Jesus Christ, I didn't realize that your podcast character is actually who you really are. Um, You know, I am a storyteller. I I learned from the best. I sat at the uh, at the ankles of Bill Cosby and I supped from his cup. Um, I I know how to tell stories. That's why when I did my best, my, my, when I was the best man at Tom's wedding, I had everybody cracking up like it was a uh, like I was at a comedy show because I know how to tell a story. I know how to deliver punchlines. Um, so everyone says, "Oh, you should be a stand-up comic," and I said, "I." Don't think that would really work well for me, a lot of my stuff is situational you know i've uh, people there's context that isn't available to you when you're a stand up comedian. You actually have to sit and take those things and repurpose them into uh into jokes and of course you've also got time limits on you it, There's more to being a stand up comic than just being able to be funny at social gatherings. I keep having to remind people of that so you know yeah, what? To your point. So, the, so your point about like not not acting and you know and, and all this other stuff it's it, or Larry the cable guy it's Larry the cable guy and, and, and to a lesser extent um you might be read Jeff Foxworthy, apparently Jeff Foxworthy was very, very funny when he was in, when he worked for IBM and he managed to parlay that into being a stand up comedian but, but God, that took work
1: no you, you know what. Um, uh on uh, the blue collar comedy tour guys i will actually give jeff foxworthy some credit for being relatively funny he he gets a long way with delivery with decent material with personality and and that's despite the fact with him being a gimmick comedian sure i'll hand him i'll hand him that bill Engvall, i think is actually probably the funniest one of the bunch
0: well, because oh, he's a, exactly. just a traditional family man comic. His well, whole, other yeah. than the here's your sign stuff, his whole shtick is I'm a dad with children and here are some of my funny stories.
1: Well, well, right, but he's actually able to take it and be creative and actually make it funny. Ron White, okay, you know what? Fuck you. You're ripping off somebody who made a career out of ripping off Bill Hicks. You're imitating, <laughs> a, you're imitating a joke, beef, you fucking chucklehead. As for Larry the Cable Guy, it doesn't surprise me that he would be cast in a movie aimed at small children because, after all, Larry's Larry's fortune is proof that the brain-injured spend money, too. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't take much in this country. He's never acting. Every line he delivers, like I said, it's like he gets up on stage, and I swear to God, even when you're listening – Whether you're looking at him live and you're actually seeing the expression on his face or you're just listening to a recording of him, you can just tell that somewhere in the back of his his mind there's a voice saying, fuck me sideways, these people are actually laughing.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, to kind of make your point for you, um, it's as if he gets up in the morning and thinks to himself, I wonder when the jig will be up and they'll realize I'm not funny. And and, oh, yeah. and let me say this to let me say this to Larry the Cable Guy. Wherever you are, sir, you will con- you will continue to have fans and make money until you decide not to do this anymore. Because there will always be meth addicts and morons who will appreciate your humor.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I uh, forgive me, folks. I, I try not to do this too often. I try not to bag on other people's taste or audiences specifically even if I don't like certain artists, I generally like to think of it as something that for the most part I've outgrown every so often though, somebody comes along who is notoriety and fan base just perpetually baffles me. (laughs) It's, it's down there with people who actually not being ironic, actually like Miley Cyrus really like her. I don't I don't understand it. You know, Owen Wilson in live action movies, okay. I kinda get it, especially if you pair him with the right person. Yes, I love Wedding Crashers. I think it's a great comedy. He manages to actually squeeze out a modicum of decent comedy in Shanghai Noon. Otherwise, though, Everybody who sees an Owen Wilson movie just spends the entire movie praying he's going to get punched within the next five seconds. There's nothing engaging about his performance. The difference being Tom Hanks, even when it's just his voice, it's that same quality that he's been bringing to characters since Joe versus the Volcano, The Money Pit, and Big. Even when he's playing somebody who's not necessarily all that likable. He brings something to him that makes you want to really kinda kinda cozy up to him. Even if he's not doing anything, it's not like he's doing his best Latka Gravis impression like he did in the terminal. <laughs> or anything like or anything like that. I can only think of really two other movies off the top of my head where he's played a relatively jerky character and that's You got male, in which case he's basically playing a playing a stereotype who's patterned after a much better played Jimmy Stewart character.
0: No, I would uh, tell you that that his role as Woody is as deep and as meaty as anything he's ever done. Oh yeah, I mean that that that's a thing as much as it's a children's movie, when you think about what he's doing as Woody and the kind of things that he has to deal with in that movie, forgetting for, if you forgot for a moment that, that this was an animated movie, set, you know, presented by Disney, uh, and I just told you, you know, Tom Hanks is playing a character in which his god has forsaken him, and he is displaced by a by a, uh, by a newer, better uh, by a newer, better thing, and he does everything in his power to try to win win favor back with that person to the point where he is exiled from his community, and he has to redeem himself. You would go, hey, that sounds like a really great movie. What is it? Fucking Toy Story is what it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to. Oh, actually, uh, you also just reminded me
1: of the plot of the first Assassin's Creed game. Well,
0: there you go. Um, <laughs> in the interest of time, uh, I do want to. I want to talk about. Um, Tim Allen for a second, because cause here's another interesting thing that they do with this movie. And again, I'm just going to pitch it to you without without reminding you that this was an animated movie and Tim Allen is playing a space action figure. So Tim Allen plays a character in which uh, he is in fact a toy, but he doesn't realize he's a toy. He thinks that from the word go, that he's an actual... Uh, Space Ranger. That he's that that he's a hero. Um, that he's on a mission. That he's crashed on a planet, and he continues to behave that way until he is confronted with the reality that he is merely a child's plaything. At which point, his entire world crumbles around him, and he he's has a to figure. Escape. He's what?
1: Um, I didn't hear Forgive what he said. me. Forgive me. Forgive me, out there, folks. If I'm actually
0: attributing this wrong.
1: Um, I remember it from my, uh, my Intro to Epics philosophy class at the University of Missouri. Um, they taught us about something called the Parable of the Cave, and I read about it again in um, a really interesting book of uh, philosophy essays that I have. Um, it's the idea of what would happen to someone's psyche to their perception if they had spent their entire lives chained up facing the wall of the cave and everything they knew of the world were the shadows that were played against the wall of the cave and then what would happen if one day that person were unchained and found the entrance to the cave and walked out of it and found out that the world wasn't really what they had spent their whole life believing it was because they had never known anything else. I guess if you also, Or, you know, that's... And again, that also describes kind of the Matrix. It describes uh, kind of sort of the plot of Fallout 3, actually, now that I think about it.
0: There's a whole host of movies that kind of deal with your reality is not your own. Um, what I'm, I... But...
1: I'm allowed to be deep. I'm not just a guy who yells
0: fuck. (laughs) Um, What I also find fascinating about the Buzz character is, so you have that. You have, he's not doing a bit. (laughs) He's not just trying to be a jackass. He really thinks that that he is what he says he is. He genuinely believes this. Um, He's certainly not, he's not a villain. He's presented as the antagonist. For Woody, but he's not a villain. Actually, this movie is actually devoid of villains, which is an odd statement because we're going to talk about Sid in just a moment. But yeah. really, if you if you look at the movie and you consider all the context and what are the motivations, there are no villains in the Toy Story movie. There are um, no, maybe a... well, that's why we're going to hash it out. But there there are motivations that sort of um, come uh, at cross with one another. But uh, he has no. Ill will towards woody it isn't until woody starts messing with him that 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 he starts to direct some of his anger at woody but he's certainly not there to curry favor with andy you know um and it, and it isn't and then when he realizes that he is a toy it's not even what he wants he'd never wanted to displace woody this sort of happened uh, and he certainly doesn't want to be a child a child's play thing and he has to uh, come to grips with that once it's presented to him, and it takes a little while, for, you know, to get there. You know, Woody in all in all of these movies has to be the one that kind of convinces people. That's like his one one ability, his one thing that he does is he has to convince people that, that he is the moral authority. Oddly enough, Woody is sort of a conscience of the whole trilogy, and he, and and in this one he has to get him to realize that okay, so you're a toy. Be a toy. Be the thing that Andy loves. Um let me just take a side road here before, before I get your reactions to buzz. Um, one of the great things about watching the first toy story and really all of them. Um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get the to toy story three and Bonnie is that there's a lot of studies out there. Um, a lot has been written, editorialized about uh, the death of imagination in children. And, it's it's dying because of terrible. It's dying because of parenting, ill parenting. It's dying because of the death of free play. Um, you know, too much scheduled play, not enough free play. It's yeah. dying because uh, kids are encouraged not to have imaginations because when you start to have an imagination, you're loud, you're annoying, and you're messy which usually the answer for that is to put you on some sort of amphetamine like Ritalin. Um, and then you get a psychiatrist to give you a label that says your attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, is this every situation? No. Is it many of them? Yes. Uh, so do, because of a cultural lack of parenting and um, the sort of wave of uh, – inability in our culture to let kids just be children you don't ever really see the kind of kids that i was when uh you know 30 some odd years ago where i would take all of my random toys and them up in large you know i had like sort of a movie image going you know uh you know there was a thing and the good guys were trying to uh, the bad guys wanted it and the good guys were trying to take it away and they were fighting over it and, you know, I just had these large imaginative landscapes in my head all set out. And that's the way kids play. And I see this now in my own daughter, where she's got random little people and Disney princesses and Disney princess bath toys and babies and, you know, all and, and random crap she's managed to find in the house. And I'll, and I'll hear her in the back seat, or I'll watch her in the living room. And she's just in her own little world playing with these things. And, and you see that with Andy. And Andy's And Andy's free play that they show you in these movies is something of a dying art. Um, And it was really, it was fun for me to watch it. It was fun for me to watch a kid like Andy being portrayed. And I hope, I actually hope I'm wrong and that my sort of editorializing about the death of free play and imagination um, is hyperbole and that there's more kids out there like Andy than not. Unfortunately, in my work, and in, my, and in the last 10 years of my life, it's not something I see a tremendous amount of. I see a lot of dullards. I see a lot of kids absorbed by television and parents who let children watch Jerry Springer. And there's not a lot of imagination, and there's not a lot of play. And now when I ask a kid, why are you on suicide watch, he says, huh? So, you know, that's, that's the world I'm coming from. Uh, so, Sean... Yeah, I'm gonna let you. I, got, I threw two balls in the air. Catch the one you want. I talked a little bit about Buzz uh, and how he's written, and I talked a little bit about Andy and um, the, the in my mind, the death of free play. Go.
1: I'll I'll kind of talk about both. Um, as far as Buzz goes, that's that's a, that may be the character that I really whose conflict I kind of personally get the most. And I have to give a lot of credit to Tim Allen' first performance. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um at this time, of course, when, when they made this movie, Home Improvement was still very much a thing, and it was a, a big thing. It was a big old ratings juggernaut on ABC, which is of course Disney Home. Um, it, it was a big. It was a big enough thing that it was a really big deal that they were able to land uh that show's breakout child star, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, to be the lead in Hamlet with Lions. Uh, Tim Allen, yeah, he he's another gimmick comic, but for the time he was he was a pretty good gimmick comic. He was who he was. Uh, you know, he did his his man humor thing, his his thing about being big being big on and a crappy handyman really well, parlayed into a character on what was, for about half its run, a pretty well-written sitcom. But you really didn't see him really creating a character quite like this, given everything else that you'd seen of him. This this kind of over-the-top, I don't want to say pompous Spaceman man figure, but a very a very chest puffed out uh, hero figure. Not real, not really arrogant, but very brave and and dignified and duty oriented. Um, just uh, pretty honorable for the most part. Um, and then you get to this point to where. He's confronted with the reality where somebody tells him you're not everything that you think you are. And uh, kind of like Mark, you know, I, I'm going to get kind of personal for a second because that's, that's what we do on this show is we talk about what we have personally invested in some of these movies. As I watch this years later, having not watched this in a long time, obviously I'm big on when I'm experiencing fiction, I gravitate towards things where I can identify with something about myself, either who I am or who I've been. And I get that feeling of being really locked into a role that everything has told you you're supposed to be. That was 10 years of my life.
0: What were you supposed to be? I'm asking.
1: Well, I was kind of locked into being... Uh, kind of a person, not a very good person. In fact, I was—I was really quite an asshole. Um, I had a lot of—I had a lot of bad personal habits and a lot of bad attitudes that were my own in the first place. That were—I had a real chip on my shoulder. I was very sarcastic. I could be very mean spirited, very vindictive, very hot tempered. And I had always been those things a little bit. But the thing was, um, I was in a long relationship from my senior year of high school up until the time I was 28 with somebody who might not have brought those qualities out in me necessarily, but who really amplified them and kind of enforced them. Because in many ways, she had a lot of the same qualities, and it was somebody who had a very who also had a very close-knit, um, manipulative, uh, kind of very kind of very backstabby kind of family that I was forced to be around a lot. And I was always kind of kind of pressured by always being told that I wasn't good enough for him and I needed to be this kind of cer- this kind of certain way make her happy because making her family happy would make her happy. And even though it wasn't a person that I was really comfortable with being and it wasn't a person that I ever felt I really chose, that at the time I didn't really feel I was choosing to be. I felt like I had to be that person if I wanted to keep this person who was very close to me. Um, And it was kind of enforced but also by the fact that three years into the relationship, I was blindsided by a breakup, uh, left very confused about what I had done wrong, uh, what wasn't I that she needed me to be, and then when we got back together for the next seven years, I was always kind of afraid to speak my mind, really stand up for myself, really kind of figure out who I was, because I thought that that would cost me that person. And in turn, the same things just continued and just kept getting worse. I kept feeling like I was being pushed around, Mm -hmm. manipulated, and I would, and eventually I would always cave. And in a way that's, that's that's different obviously from the way Buzz is, in that Buzz just doesn't know any other way to be. And Mm -hmm. In my case, obviously, I had times when I would let the better person in me kind of come out, but then I was also afraid, well, but my friends are also familiar with only this person. This is the kind of rapport I have with them. What would happen to all my friends if I were to really change the way I am? And that would kind of scare me. And then what happened was I met somebody. Uh, toward the end of my relationship with my fiance, when things were really falling apart. And I was faced by some of those choices. But then what happened was kind of like in the movie, I was faced with one kind of moment of truth question. And that was... If who you are, if who you really are, is something that's very important to somebody else, and that somebody else very important to you really loves, and really loves very dearly, then what's so bad about just being what you, being what you are, even if what you really are isn't what you thought you were all this time?
0: That certainly buzzes central question, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, that was something
0: that... Hey, can I put you on pause for just one second? We have about a minute and 30 seconds of uh, on-air time, at which point we are going to go into an extended overrun where you will hear us get into Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3, I promise. Uh, It's probably going to take up the entire hour of post-recording time to get it all done, so uh, if you're listening live, uh, please do come back in a couple of hours, you know, sometime tomorrow, and download the archive to hear us talk about uh, Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. Um, we are definitely going to be spending a lot of time on Jesse, who uh, is pretty much the star, of, and, and, and god damn, that's Joan Cusack's finest hour um, um, oh. in that one. But, uh, yeah, and Kelsey Grammer certainly uh, was no slouch. And then, of course, uh, Toy Story 3, and I'm definitely going to be spending some time on the conclusion of that, um, both the descent into hell and the uh, sort of handing off of the toys to Bonnie um, and why Bonnie is an important character to me. Uh, but we're going to get get into all that in the next hour. Um, okay, so we got about 20 seconds, and then uh, if you're listening live, it's going to go dead. So continue, Sean. Sure. Um, so, and
1: really, I... I guess I could Obviously, I could have never understood that at any other point because after 10 years, that was a lot of damage that that took a very long time to deprogram. And that person who meant that much to me is... A lot of people out there, a lot of friends of mine who listen to the show regularly, let's face it, you already know who I'm talking about, um, but she is extremely private um, for reasons that have a lot to do with a lot of invasions of her privacy and so I'm not, I'm not going to name her here but she's still very much uh, a huge part of my life it is very much the love of my life and you know she's had to be very patient with me sometimes over the last three years as I've kind of figured things out and it's not like in, it's not like in the movies it's not like where you have just one moment necessarily that completely turns everything around sometimes it's much harder and moments are going to sneak up on you when you're going to realize there's still stuff you got to work on and that's that's one of those things about this movie that as beautiful as traditional animation like The Little Mermaid and and Beauty and the Beast obviously are and what landmarks they are, I can't think of one time I've ever seen a piece of traditional Disney animation that's really tried to tackle something of that kind of weight and when you talk about the issue of, of free play, it's a little different It's a little different for me in that I'm not a parent, and so I really wouldn't have the kind of insight that Mark does into how raising children has really changed. For me, the part about imagination, I will definitely agree with that in terms of uh, people like Mark and I and a lot of our colleagues and friends in 411 Mania uh, we describe ourselves, obviously, as, as geeks just because it's what we're used to. But the fact is, is a big part of that is is that growing up and at various points in our lives, we've had to turn to very imaginative and speculative works of fiction um, because we really couldn't find anybody else that was really kind of wired quite like we were
0: one quick thing, you know, my my and I want I, You're going to continue, and and that's fine. But I, I want to just add something to that really quick. My wife always asks me, she you know, because we're we're just wired very differently. It's it's why we work as well as we do. Um, but I can sit here and. I get, and she she's watched me. Okay, let me sum this up this way: We watched the documentary, The People versus George Lucas, and she really enjoyed it. She thought it was very interesting. She was floored by how anyone could be as into Star Wars as the people in that movie are. That documentary, and she was like, and and she kind of looked at me. She's like, and you're those people. You know, the fact that I get, I got angry last year, you know, to the point where um, I I was pretty much a pill to be around. Because I didn't get to see the Hobbit until uh, Christmas Eve, um, you know. Uh, the, we we got into a rare yelling match because I kept having I kept having to wait to see the Avengers, and it's like, well, you kind of sound like an infant. Well, no, here's the point that I'm getting at, and granted, I could be a little childish at times, but what the thing that my wife has noticed about me is how deeply in love with some of these worlds i i am you know star wars comic books etc the world of lord of the rings and she said and i just i've i'm not in love with anything like that the way you are and i don't understand why why are you that way and i said it's escapism i guess um the world of star wars well hang on the world of star wars sometimes is, is for me is a much better place to be than the world I'm presently living in. The world of Lord of the Rings, the world of Marvel are sometimes places I need to go because the world I'm presently in uh, isn't a place that I, I want to be right at that time. And eventually you have to come back to reality and deal with life. And I think I do that effectively, I, I pretty effectively. But there, there are those times where I need to be in those worlds. I need to be out of this one and, and into those
1: well, and I and I know how that is. Um, anybody out
0: there who follows me on Facebook, um,
1: <laughs> you you know by now that I'm a gamer, and above every single other video game franchise, there is Mass Effect. Um, I I play through that I play through that trilogy about once a year, at least. Sometimes I'll even squeeze in two playthroughs a year. Um, and there are still moments in that franchise when even though it's just me in front of a screen with a controller, uh, there are still moments that I find will still move me so hard because they've gone to such great pains to make what the characters are going through uh, so relatable. Uh, And it depends on on the character. Uh, If you're talking about Thane, it's the idea of trying to atone... For a lifetime of killing, of which he's not proud, and trying to come peace, come to peace with it as as death nears. Um, in the case of uh, Grunt, it's it's trying to find identity among a species that shuns him because of something that he can't help, and that's the way that he was that he was created. If you're talking about Morden. It's about trying to justify his role in what's been viewed as an atrocity, but an atrocity that he believes balls to bones is necessary. I could go on and on from character to character. But the fact is that also, in all this speculative fiction, and this is something that I hope that one day Melissa understands, there are lessons you can try to teach somebody in the plainest of language. And all it will ever sound like to them is just empty platitudes. And the fact is, the message is what matters. But the language in which it's delivered matters too. Because if I say to somebody... If I say to somebody that speaks my language, I love you, obviously... That comes across perfectly clearly because we both speak the same language. But unfortunately, if somebody is very dear to me, despite the fact that we don't speak the same language, the same the the, the same language or the same dialects, if I'm saying "I love you" instead of say diamo, which is the same thing in Italian, then it's never going to come across quite the same way. And in many cases, for a lot of us who never felt like we completely belonged for one reason or another, either because we were the black sheep of our families or the black sheep of our schools, our social groups, what have you, sometimes the places where we really learn the most about what it means to be heroic, to be a good person... Is to learn these values from these modern day parables. The other night, I actually got, I actually got fairly angry at, at somebody that I, that I was otherwise actually fairly attracted to, um, physically anyway. Because I happened to mention that my birthday gift to myself, one of them is going to be that I plan on buying myself a ticket to go to an AMC theater here in Phoenix on November 25th, so that I can watch Day of the Doctor. So I can watch Matt Smith's Farewell to Doctor Who and the introduction of Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor. That's a big deal to me because I love Doctor Who. It's a series that's rich not just in action and humor and deep character and pathos, but a series in which you can learn something, and you can learn things you can identify with. Things like one of my very favorite lines from the episode of Vincent and the Doctor, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can never remember it entirely, unfortunately. Um, the good things don't always cancel out the bad, but the bad things don't always cancel out the good, either. It's that idea that there's balance in life. And you can go through any other series, well, like you talked about, like the Lord of the Rings like Lord of the Rings saga. Um, the idea of coming to grips with your identity, with your, with your, with your destiny, and that you cannot run from who you are. Um, the, if, if you're a Christian, God-fearing man, God-fearing man or woman, there's obviously all of those themes in it as well. Um, there's, uh, um the the idea that somebody who's small in stature, still with the right will and the right fortitude, has power to has the power to change the world.
0: We all matter. Uh, that was the, I mean, er, er, the, we all matter, the, even the smallest amongst us, and that was what you get out of right. uh, Lord well, of the Rings.
1: Or, or, or in my case. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Green Lantern fan. I'm relatively new to comics, but the two heroes that I gravitate to most are Batman and Green Lantern. And if you go back far enough, and obviously in the present day, the emphasis is more on the idea of the power of will versus the power of fear and how they have the power to either conquer one another or to cancel each other out. But if you go back far enough, there's the whole idea that the yellow impurity in the power ring and in the power battery is necessary to give it its strength. Well, right there, you have the fact that your weakness can be a source of, of strength, of, of power, of, of growth. And sometimes it's necessary for you, to achieve that, for you to achieve that kind of strength. That is the value of speculative fiction and movies like this and imagination because sometimes it really finds this way to get these things across in ways that nothing else will. And that's why I always bristle a little bit when grown-up geeks like you and I kind of catch a little bit of hell for, for being gamers or, or being big into sci-fi. Um, it's not necessarily that we didn't learn these lessons anyplace else. It's just that they're the most important places we
0: learn them because
1: they give us... They give these lessons symbols, things we can attach to them, and things that are easy to call back to and that become rallying cries to us. And they do become parts parts of who we are. And that's why imagination is important is because sometimes in life you do have times when the only place you can go to is inside your own head when that's the only place you can get away from everything else and you really can reconnect with who you are. And that's why much like you, I'm not real big on this overemphasis on reality. Yeah, being in touch with reality is great. You have to be. But we put We put too much sometimes into that into, into structure, into order. and I realize the world is a different place. It's a more dangerous place from when our grandparents and our parents grew up, and even probably when you and I grew up, mark. But the simple fact is is that it's more than just making up silliness and fantasy and
0: well well like i said that. this just to get back to the science of it that, that and, and i don't want to get too long into this but um you know they, they've proven that uh a, ch- a child's expression of uh imagination actually helps to promote development it's one of the reasons why a lot of times you know look children don't necessarily need to have a one-on-one Interaction with their parent. They do, however, want their parent to be in the room. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that kids do, and Lily is a great example of this, is she wants me to watch her play, and that's a, that's enough. She doesn't need me to play with her. Just be in the room with her and watch what she's doing. And, and it's important to just let her. Like I can't follow half the time what the hell she's doing. I you mean know, she's got Sophia in the Disney Castle, and now, what the hell's going on. Um, but it's important for her to do that, and it, it'll, it'll, the importance of it will, will, will show itself as the years go on. I think a lot of times, you know, parents you know, see their kids you know, talking to themselves or imaginary friends, or you know doing the kinds of things that Andy does in this movie and they're very quick to stamp it out, and they don't realize the exponential harm they're causing. Um, now, sort of the polar opposite of that, <laughs> you have Sid. And, he, and, and here's why I say I don't regard Sid as a true villain. Um, if you don't know that the toys in this universe are alive... If you just assume toys are exactly what they are—manufactured pieces of plastic and metal—that um, can be uh, treasured or discarded, depending upon the will of the user—is what Sid's doing really a bad thing? This didn't even know. I mean, I'm bullying his sister a little bit, but I mean, again, you know, I can't—I don't know anybody who's got uh, more than you know one child in the house where well, that sort of shit doesn't happen. Um, but I, when you think about what he's doing, Sid's playing, you know, Sid, the, 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 intro, the things you see Sid doing are, at, he's at times playing a doctor, he's playing an astronaut, he's doing exactly what Andy's doing, he's just breaking his toys in the process, he's doing different things with them. But it isn't just a, I want to take a magnifying glass to an ant to see it burn, or I want to, uh, you know, I want to rip the legs off a frog or beat a cat over the head with a bat kind of sociopathic behavior. It's, you know, I'm putting the teract- the, the, the uh, pterodactyl's head on the dolly, the dolly's head on the pterodactyl, one, because I'm being a jerk to my sister, but two, because I think this is funny. You know, I'm blowing up uh, Buzz Lightyear because I want to see what happens when you take a huge firecracker and blow a toy up. Um... There are other things like, you know, putting the baby's head on the erector set thing, uh, things like that. I, I, and, and I'm willing to listen to sort of the counterargument to this if you have one. But Sid, in all of these instances, is playing much the same way that Andy is. And the only reason why he comes across as a villain in this movie is because the audience is aware that Woody and Buzz and all these other toys are alive in, to some degree or another. And therefore, it's not playing, it's torture. And when he's and when that is revealed, when uh the the toys sort of get their revenge and save Buzz uh, and reveal themselves to be live creatures who are feeling and they don't want to be abused, he stops. He freaks out. You know, I, I wanted to see the flash forward twenty years from now where they're injecting him with Haldol. but um you know as he's strapped to a as he's strapped to a gurney, telling the toys are alive, um but you know, in that instance, he repents. You know, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to hurt the toys anymore. He, you know, I, I, if if he reacts differently, if he goes, you know, as you as you've had your experience with this, if Tim, if uh, Tom Hanks doesn't spin his head around and go, now play nice, Sid, um, and he goes, you know, fuck off, Woody, and then tries to set Woody on fire. Okay, he's a villain. Scratch everything I just said. But he doesn't do that. He immediately gives up. He immediately sees the error of his ways and says, Spirit, I want another chance, and gives money to the poor, a la Scrooge McDuck. You know what I mean? So I I, I don't... And the other thing I wanted to bring up about Sid is... um, I brought this up. I'm bringing this up because my my mother-in-law made mention of it. Apparently, uh, Lily thought the first time she saw, uh, as she calls it, uh, Cowboy and Buzz... Uh, she thought Sid was hilarious. Just thought Sid was the funniest character in the movie. And my mother-in-law was a little worried about that because she doesn't want Lily to, you know, to think that that's appropriate behavior. And, and I said to her, I was just like, well, first of all, she's two. Second of all, you know, it, it, she's – the kid is playing and being funny. There's funny things that the character's doing, and she's reacting naturally. So I don't see that as a bad thing. Your witness.
1: Uh, hang on just a second. I've got somebody who's trying to message me about something mid-show, despite the fact that I just said I'm on the air.
0: <laughs> you know there's going to be a Lego movie?
1: Damn it. There's going to be a Lego movie? Really?
0: Yes, and the Lego movie is basically almost like a send-up of The Matrix. It looks hilarious.
1: Okay. Anyway. Message sent. Um,
0: <laughs> God
1: damn it. I know that instant message thing is going to beep again in a second. Uh, Anyway, um, no, it's, it's only horrifying because in the movie, we're, settle, we're settled in by that point to seeing it from the toy's point of view. From a human point of view, shit is Calvin. Yeah. He, you how know many times he, I he popped
0: he, the head off my... The, the, the Kenner Star Wars toys were so poorly made that I couldn't keep a Darth Vader toy because the head kept popping off.
1: You what? It's, Really, people need to kind of lighten up about that a little bit because he's not doing it to living things. Right. Okay? He, it, it, it's what's become that societal knee-jerk reaction. And, and this has already been a very personal podcast, unusually so for us. I, I'm going to throw this out there, too. It's the kind of attitude that growing up, Kept me away, actually, from a lot of the social groups and actually really pushed me right out of organized religion, to be perfectly honest with you. It's that lack of acceptance for anybody who doesn't fit the norm exactly. And Disney is kind of pushing that in that way. Okay, So he mutilates a few innocent plastic figures to be a little bit creative. And? It's plastic. (laughs) Okay. Yes, in your fanciful little world, the toys have souls. It's not like we're watching him do this to cats, dogs, people, classmates we're not it's toys and like you put it he's pretending he's pretending to be a trauma surgeon he's having a little mischievous fun strapping a toy to a rocket and wanting to watch and wanting to watch it blow up
0: yeah it's he's a, not the jo- he's not the joker wanting to watch the world burn
1: yeah exactly he's freaking Calvin Okay, yeah. if Bill Walkerson had carried Calvin and Hobbes on another six or seven years until Calvin was an adolescent, and eventually decided to age him a la Rugrats, all grown up, this is probably how Calvin would have turned out. God knows we can hope he wouldn't have done it to Hobbes. <laughs> but yeah, he probably would. He probably would have snatched up a couple of Susie Durkin's Polly Pissy Pants dolls. Or Barbies or Bratz dolls, and gone straight pinhead and the Cenobites on them. Dan's, yeah, okay. He mixed he mixed and matched a few heads and action figure parts on a few bodies. Whoopity shit! Have you seen what most action figures look like nowadays? <laughs> it's not like that. It's not like that's all that that's all that different necessarily. Um but no, we're taught to believe that even if it's not hurting anybody, if something is different, it must be wrong. It's that kind of thing in post Columbine society where if you play a violent video game that someone else considers distasteful, um, if black happens to be your favorite color to wear, if you listen to industrial you listen, music lot, Yeah, if you listen to a lot of heavy Industrial rock, well, you just bought yourself a fast pass right through the metal detectors anywhere you go um,
0: yeah.
1: because and, that, if, and
0: and that doesn't make you know and the and boy that doesn't make kids not want to go to school not you know you, you're if you're already, if you're already talking about kids who are having some difficulty um engaging socially with their peers. Then make them out to be murderers before they've done anything to anybody sure that'll you know that'll, that'll definitely uh improve the situation
1: yeah and and it doesn't and it's one of the things that i will that for all the good for all the good things that a Disney movie can teach somebody it's one of the few very few small things I would find maybe a little bit wrong with this one and yeah, granted, as you pointed out. He sees the error in his ways according to this movie's specific viewpoint. But if you look at it from a human being's viewpoint, he wasn't doing anything wrong in the first place because it's not like he even knew that Woody and Buzz belonged to Andy. All he knew was, woohoo, double prize from the crane machine at Pizza Planet.
0: Yeah. They were his toys to do what he wants with. And he he wants to blow, and he won them in a game. So it wasn't like you can even use the argument, oh, well, his parents bought them. He should treat his stuff with more respect. Let me tell you something. To those out there who would seek to judge Sid, my daughter, for some odd reason, she's done this since we started giving her dollies to play with. When she took an interest in baby dolls, None of them could keep their clothing on. Every single one of them was an aborigine walking around buck naked. Okay. When we gave her um, sort of life size, not life size, but when they gave her the, the taller um, Disney princess dolls, they stand about, about a foot or so high. None of them kept their clothing on. My daughter, for some odd reason, feels the need to make every single one of her dolls naked. I don't know why could not begin to explain it something wrong with my kid i mean I, I, geez, you don't know what the hell goes through some of these kids minds or why they feel the need that they do but that's sort of the fun of having a kid is getting to see this sort of skewed bizarre point of view in this other person
1: it's it's curiosity about the world around them and sometimes people have to figure out figure out things about that world around them in mostly harmless but perhaps a little bit slightly odd ways it's it's just the way it goes i mean if you ever want to hear a great bit about the kid thing you just mentioned folks if you have never seen it or heard it i do believe that the whole thing is actually on youtube if you look for it somewhere Go track down
0: Dana Carvey's Critics' Choice HBO special. Oh God, that's funny. The Naked bit... time. Naked time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> the bit on the bit on Naked Time at his house is absolutely
0: hysterical. Oh, uh, the, the, it's part of the same bit. But when he starts talking about, well, "Have you ever seen your kids just go suddenly silly?" You know, and, and he describes it as, you know, like, the kid will be doing something and then all of a sudden just start doing something really wackadooish. And you're just like, where did that come from? It's great. <laughs> God, let the kids be kids. Okay. I think... Um, so, we all kind of know how Toy Story ends. Uh, good Christ, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know how Toy Story ends, oh, oh okay. Um, what he convinces Buzz that being a toy is a good thing and that uh, there's, n- there's no love like a child's love for his toys. And Buzz accepts his role as a toy. Uh, they escape from Sid. And uh, one of the nice things, and, and this becomes sort of a running thing throughout the rest of the Toy Story movies, is they're not trapped in the room. Um, what's really, really great about the Toy Story movies is that these become adventure films in that you have... Uh, kind of like Lord of the Rings, you know, you have very much fish out of water. Uh, the world is too big. Situations, and, and and in this particular case, you have toys, toys who have to play dead whenever they're seen by human beings, which makes which gives them an added level of uh, of uh, um, dread of difficulty. So um, Woody and Buzz end up being um, they're they they end up outside of the uh, outside of Andy's room. Uh, so they're cast into the world, and the last thing that uh, Woody wants is to become a lost toy, so they struggle struggling uh to get back to Andy's room. They end up in Sid's room, which is right next door through you know being took up by the crane um, and then it's about, and then uh, another added thing that they have to deal with, another obstacle is that Andy is moving to a bigger house uh because yep. they've got to accommodate the new sister um, so now they've got to get from the old house to the new house. And it all works itself out. They end up back in Andy's thing, and you know. And the, one of the things that you notice at the end of the movie, which was different from how the movie had been presented, it, where all of the Woody stuff is removed and replaced by Buzz stuff, sheets, posters, etc. At the end of the movie, both Woody and, and Buzz are are in the prized spot on the bed. There's. A, um, I think there's like a, a woody blanket but a buzz pillowcase and then there were two posters right next to each other. So, they yeah, have both found favor with the god uh, by the end of that movie and it all works out happily ever after. Um, and, the only, and the only actual villain of this thing, if there if could be such a character, was Mr. Potato Head and he got his when he got an RCE uh, racer right to the face. It was fantastic. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. He was floaty yeah, yes, he did. Um, Toy Story
1: two. Uh,
0: oh, Toy story... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Toy story two was uh, was a great story, and um, I, I like. Uh, apparently, it was going to be a direct. Now, if you if you can if you've got kids and you get into the whole uh, you know buying Disney movies for them, you know that like Cinderella has sequels to it. There's there's now a Cinderella trilogy uh, coming soon to a long road to ruin near you. <laughs> um, like... And it's all. <laughs> i'm gonna make you do it one day because I've, like, I've had to huh
1: senator i refer to my statement like fuck
0: okay i couldn't i i heard like and I, I i was like i guess he's saying like hell but i couldn't hear it um so yeah cinderella has two movies i think there are either sequels or prequels to the Little Mermaid. Um, There's, uh, I think, Aladdin's got a sequel or two to it, and they're all direct-to-video. Most of these never make it to the theater. Um, The Lion King has The Lion King and One and a Half that I think just focuses on uh, Pumbaa and Hakuna Matata, whatever his name is. Um, So they were going to do a direct-to-video for Toy Story 2, and and, and the plot was so good, the movie was so good, that they said this is good enough to be a theatrical release. And it too came out in uh, November. Came out November twenty fourth, nineteen ninety nine, and um, it, it did awesome. Ninety million dollar budget made four hundred eighty five million dollars. Well, excuse me, more four hundred eighty five million dollars worldwide. So uh, obviously it was a, it was a successful movie, and the plot centers around um, Andy goes away for the summer, and um, he's he's going to take Woody with him to camp but he ends up uh, slightly ripping uh, Woody's arm, so he doesn't want to take it to camp with him because it'll get destroyed. So he leaves it at home. He accidentally get, ends up being sold, stolen really, at a yard sale that he was never meant to be a part of. Um, and he ends up in the hands of the series' really tr- first true villain, uh, which, by the way, if, if anyone recently saw the Toy Story of Terror um, one hour special that was on ABC during uh, the month of October. A very similar plot to that in that there's a collector, uh, there's a toy collector who's making money off of selling rare toys. And as it turns out, Woody is a rare toy. Rare. Um. He's. I guess he's. He's supposed to be like a send up of Howdy Doody. Is his uh, his origin? You know, he, he finds out that he's not just a toy. He was an icon. Um. And it's, so it's, it's in the big picture. It's kind of bigger than that, though, because really, what we find out is once on Woody was Buzz. Yes, and he doesn't realize that at all. He he never knew that he was such a big he was such a big deal. So, yeah. um, so the plot, like I said, the plot of this thing is that the toy collector has stolen him for the purposes of selling a complete set of Woody's Roundup toys to a Japanese. Uh, toy museum. Um, and this is where he meets the people that were in the show with him, which was the prospector as played by Kelsey Grammer and Jesse, who is his cowgirl, and then there's his, his uh, trusty horse, Bullseye. And I'm going to let go of the plot details of this thing, and just, I want to focus on Jesse, who this is Jesse's movie. Never mind the, you know Buzz leading a troop of toys to go rescue Woody, never mind Woody's sort of story as he you know comes to uh, you know as he is forced with sort of an ultimate choice do i go back to the god who will eventually forsake me because of his age and he will no longer play with toys or do i go live forever um as, as my own god in this museum but I will never be played with you know what 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 to do um, and he's sort of guilted into uh, possibly going that way by Jesse, played by John Cusack, and Kelsey Grammer, who plays the in-the-box mint toy, which I thought was hilarious. Um, especially coming from somebody who, up until very recently, had a Jesus and Moses action figure still in the box, in, hanging out in my room. Um, and I eventually just gave him to my daughter to play with when we cleaned out the, uh, the office. But, John Cusack's Jesse is a very interesting character, because we, we've already talked about some very heady subjects with, uh, with Tom Hanks's Woody and Tim Allen's Buzz. Joan Cusack's Jesse does a great job of melding together several disp- d- different uh, aspects of this character. The concept of being loved and abandoned, and then the quite frightening concept of being trapped in a box and traumatized. Jesse is a very traumatized character and it's a note that they would hit several times throughout the movie as she says things like I'm not going back in the box and part of the reason why she's so driven to go to this museum is she doesn't want to be abandoned by yet another kid so she doesn't want to find a new kid and she also doesn't want to be placed into a storage like she once was. She apparently had spent a considerable amount of time sitting in a donations box that when her kid gave her away. So she's been marred by a terrible, uh, a terrible life and she doesn't want to go back to it. And so she needs Woody to agree to this, or she's going to end up being shoved, you know, back on a shelf never to be heard from again, which she doesn't want. Uh, And the prospector has somewhat of the same motivation, though not quite with the, with the trauma. But the reason why I'm focusing on Jesse is because, and, and, and I'm not even joking and being facetious when I say this is probably Joan Cusack's best performance in anything she's ever done in her life um, concerning the kind of stuff that she picks. She plays a traumatized person, and that's, you know, I, I'm not going to call her a toy. It was a person. A traumatized person very well. Her portrayal of Jesse, I think, is spot on, and it's even something they play upon later when they do the Toy Story of Terror thing, where she has to go confront this thing again, where she has to get inside of a box in order to save Woody. Uh, and I'm not going to get too much into into the Toy Story of Terror thing, but she they continue to play this play up this thing of she doesn't want to have to be back in a box again. Um, so let's talk about Jesse for a little bit. What were your thoughts on the Jesse character?
1: I guess I wasn't. Quite as invested in her as yours, but I think I was much more compelled actually by Woody's story, and kind of seeing how he would deal with the parallel of kind of being in Buzz's situation, and how and how eventually you even you even see Buzz confronted by a newer Buzz Lightyear doll at one point, right? Um. And I guess also it's kind of wrapped up also in that theme that sometimes when some things really matter to us most, no matter how much new may come and go, you know it doesn't diminish how much we love those things or those people that they're really completely wholly separate, and we can't be necessarily sucked into that or the belief that the people that we love the most and who love us the most will necessarily forsake us just because we get a little bit broken, a little bit dusty. Um some of our parts maybe
0: are showing a little more wear and tear than they used to. It is it does say the movie does say something about having faith in, in having faith in your brothers and sisters and those who love you. Have faith that right. they won't abandon you at the first sign of trouble. Right,
1: right. And, you know, and that's, and that's kind of the same thing that, that Jessie goes through because she remembers that when Emily loved her so much and then eventually kind of cast her away. And, and even when you look at something like that, you have to wonder, does Jessie... Did Emily really just not love her anymore, and just carelessly throw her away, or was it just maybe that Emily always kind of, kind of kind of loved the memories, but realized that it was it was time to let go that it wasn't meant to necessarily last forever the way some things are.
0: It's a it, it is an interesting thing because it, it's a. Um... It's about relationships, and sometimes you just you 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 grow. You grow away from a person. You know, um, the relationship just isn't meeting the needs of the other person anymore. And they will always love you, but they cannot be with you anymore. Now, in, in simple terms, this is a child who grows into an adult, and an adult goes and, you know, you see it in the movie where all of the Jesse stuff and the horse stuff is replaced with makeup. Um, it is the natural... It is one of the things that actually Kelsey as prospector says. It is the natural, natural progression of things for kids to turn into adult and for childish things to be replaced by adult things. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It is just a reality. And as a toy, it, it, you have to... Who is alive you have to face that reality is that your child will always love you, but cannot always be with you. And then what to do if you were a toy. And, um, and, and so she's, her reaction to it is essentially, I will never love again. God, and boy, have we all been there. You know, I will never love again. I will never give my heart to another, uh, cause I cannot bear for it to be broken again. And sort of Woody convinces her that, uh, you have to open yourself to love again. You know, there, there is life beyond first love. And it's a, it's a nice little, it's a nice little story. It's a nice lesson. Um, there's, my wife is telling me as we were marathoning these, that there's a lot of star Wars references in, um, in Toy in the toy story trilogy. And I, and when they, and at the end of the movie where it almost gets a little absurd, you know, I, I don't want to pick on it too much and we are running very short on time here. So, and I want to get the toy story three, uh, so let me just say this: the whole airport thing. Look, I can live with them trying to hitch rides and get on trucks and stuff, and get into the pizza guy's car. And I can live with all of these things. If Frodo can walk across the, you know, the lands of Middle Earth, climb up a volcano, have his finger bitten off, and uh, have the ring fall into lava, I suppose toys can get from one place to another. But for God's sakes, the stuff at the airport got a little silly. And when well, you know what. <laughs> I, actually you you bring up you do kind
1: of bring up one other theme that i that I really kind of like and that's the idea of kind of going kind of going forth and putting your out yourself out there and kind of taking your lumps in order to love somebody and be with somebody that you love instead of kind of remaining forever undead. Forever undamaged, but forever without those people that are near to you.
0: Um, so, yeah.
1: The uh, I just want to say the it, the I, when they I I, I kind of liken it to kind of like kind of like Arwen and Eric kind of how Arwen gives says one of my favorite one of my favorite lines about how she would choose a choose a mortal life with him rather. Than and then Eternal Life Without Him. An Eternal Life Without Him. Yeah. That's that the, that, um, that is one of my favorite lines of those movies.
0: It's 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 up there. Um The the scene where they're where, back to Toy Story Two where they they're going into the baggage handling thing and it's it's just like Star Wars and I was like, Oh, goodness gracious. Um The prospector is the first villain, the first real villain you see in the Toy Story trilogy. He's the one who's doing he's doing he's purposely and knowingly doing bad things uh, to manipulate Woody to get his way. And his way is he's never been played with, he's never had an owner. He wants to be at this museum where you know he can not be in the box anymore, and he can be um, seen by you know any you know by millions of kids who come to this museum. Um, he finally, he's finally going to get the, uh, respect that he thinks he richly deserves. So he does terrible things in order to get to that point. And when it doesn't go his way, he starts reacting violently. He is the first villain of the Toy Story trilogy and Kelsey Grammar does a great job of playing a very manipulative character. The problem here is that he is completely eclipsed by Ned Beatty's Lotza. Oh dear God. Toy Story 3, which came out in 2010, I believe, uh, so 11 years after Toy Story 3, and it, I think it almost parallels the real life, yeah, this came out June 12th, first one not to come out in November uh, of 2010, I actually saw this one with um, uh, my parents and my wife, Um And uh, this one features Ned Beatty as uh, Lotza, who smells like strawberries. And he's a bear. Uh, Lotza Hugging Bear. And um, like I said, it mirrors sort of the real time. This is now Andy grown up. Andy is off to college. His shit's been packed up for quite some time. All the toys are in the trunk. And, you know, he's got to clean out his room. um, And things either have to be donated, tossed out, or put in the attic. And for the toys this is this is almost heartbreaking because, you know, they're losing their kid and they don't really just want to sit in the attic, but at least they'll be together. Um, and I think Woody is going to be taken up to college as sort of his, you know, little collectible uh, um, security toy, you know, just something to bring up with him. And what ends up happening is that uh, through some machination or another, Uh, the toys feel like they have an opportunity at a second life by being donated to a daycare. And as it turns out, Ned Beatty's Lossa Huggin' Bear is running the daycare like a prison. Boy, (laughs) did I relate to this movie. (laughs) Um, Good grief. Uh, And and much the same, Jamie Kennedy tells us that... uh, in the scream movies that the third one always takes us back to the beginning. And this one, it really does with buzz buzz for a short period of time, has his mind completely wiped. He is um, switched into demo mode where he believes once again, that he is a real space ranger and he is convinced by lots hug and bear to be essentially a, uh, an amped up um, prison guard. Uh, Or as they say, uh, they say at my job, a, a correctional officer, as it were, so
1: suddenly, suddenly, I want to take this movie and I want to start splicing in Shawshank Redemption dialogue. <laughs>
0: yeah, there you go. Um, in the interest of time, let me uh, let me say this: um, Woody ends up finding uh, his way to Bonnie, and and then once he is told that he has left that he has left the toys of Andy's room in great peril at, uh, at the daycare. Um, he goes back to rescue them. And, uh, you know, as I said, while the prospector was manipulative, lots of Hug and Bear is just straight-up evil. I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, he, he's running the place like a prison, you know, he's throwing toys in, uh, you know, he's torturing toys, essentially, by throwing them in, the, in the, uh, the sandbox. Then at the end, when they all end up at the dump, and, they're, uh, and they are uh, almost shredded, he betrays them. And he has uh, the, wor- you know, the, the worst um, comeuppance of any character in the trilogy, uh, you know, whereas the prospector ended up just being a kid's toy uh, with a kid who, drew, who was going to draw over him, which is <laughs> hilarious.
1: Gotta, gotta love the Dante parallel where the betrayer gets the worst of it.
0: Oh, yeah. Where, where, where he ends up being strapped to the front of a truck. You <laughs> Um but uh I, I we, we since we are running short on time, I, I do wanna hit two things and that is I wanna if we had more time I would get more into this, but uh so since we're running short, let me just ask you. After the great escape from the daycare, um, the kid uh sorry. after the great escape from the daycare the toys find themselves in a dump. Uh that's how they got out and Lots of Huggin' Bear is with them and they are um being sent to their doom and they've tried everything that they can but they but they can't escape their fate and they in the toys of Andy's room are now uh holding hands and sliding into hell. They are they, they what they what it is is it's a bunch of metal that's been scrapped together being um, melt, uh, melted down. So they are being dropped into what looks like hell, but it's just, it's just a fire pit. And it is an incredibly intense scene. And again, this is a children's movie we're talking about here. But I, I just want to get your reaction to that. I mean, do you think that was a bit much? Um, or do you think that it, it really, in terms of concluding the trilogy, hit the right pitch?
1: You know what? I could see how somebody would say that it's a bit much, but on the other hand, when you look at the way everybody remembers it fondly, and the way everybody reacts to it, and the way everybody cherishes this movie, and holds it up as maybe being at least as good as a, if not better than the first, no, I think it's about perfect. Because, quite frankly, if you want to make it, make something really that powerful, and really drive home what these characters really mean, you've... You've seen what their real purpose is in existing, and that's to bring a child happiness, to be a child's comfort, to be a child's confidant. And then you juxtapose that against them being put in, mor- in mortal peril. I don't know if the end of the movie and that kind of and the closure of it would mean quite as much if they didn't go through everything that everything they do yeah
0: well you know i think what really makes that scene so strong is they are toys they are you know it's why i relate them a lot to the hobbits of lord of the rings they are very weak in a world that is much too tough for them and yet they persevere um except that they're, now they're in a situation they have reached an obstacle that is almost insurmountable and when they hold hands and you know when they're like what do we do now and they just hold hands and descend into their descend to their death essentially they accept their fate it's incredibly powerful, and you, and as an audience member, this is what I mean by like I'm inconsolable at this point when I watch that movie. Um, that the, 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 they just accept death as their fate. You, you sit there as an audience member and you go, I don't know how they're going to get out of this. I, I don't know how as toys, what could possibly save them? And then the whole scene is completely turned on its head when they are uh, saved instantaneously by the aliens of the Crane World. which which, it was, it was a nice callback, you know, to everything that had happened in the first movie and everything. So it was, it was a nice way to sort of break the tension of that scene, which was incredibly powerful. It was Um, was perfect. Yeah, it really was. I, we got to talk about Bonnie and then we got to close up shop because, um, I believe we are going to run out of recording time. One hour past when I set the show for, and I set the show at 1030. It is almost 1130 Eastern standard time. So we have literally eight minutes. Um, Again, I have to give it somewhat short shrift, but part of the reason why Bonnie... Now, Bonnie, is, uh, what ends up happening is Andy gets all of his toys back. They all make it back to Andy's room. Um, and um, Andy is unknowingly convinced by Woody to donate his toys to Bonnie, which is where Woody had been spending some time um, before the breakout. And Bonnie represents them a second chance, a new life. Another opportunity to grow up with a, with, a, with a second child. And right down to... Excuse me. i I got to breathe so I don't start tearing up now. Right down to the tutu and rain slickers. <laughs> so Bonnie reminds me of my own kid. Aww. And it was uh, makes the movie that much more meaningful for me. I don't know how you can react to that other than saying, aw, you know, but that there is no deep cinema- cinematic uh, reference point I can make about that other than I love Bonnie. She reminds me of my own kid. Though so the one thing I will add to that is that my wife surmised that Bonnie is Boo from Monsters University. That's, so that was her <laughs> thought.
1: I didn't see Monsters University, but I like the sorry. idea of that. Monsters Inc. Incorporated.
0: Monst- Monsters Inc. Oh. Oh, Boo from Monsters Inc. Oh.
1: Okay, yeah, that's kind of cute.
0: <laughs> okay, you've got uh, literally five minutes <laughs> to, to make any point you need to make, anything final you want to say about the Toy Story trilogy.
1: These movies are absolutely perfect for anybody of absolutely any age, and your value is only limp The value you find in them is not going to be diminished but only changed with age these stand up so well and it is a trilogy that knows just exactly when to close up shop and just exactly how to do it with absolutely immaculate closure and if there's anything negative I can say about them it's that I really don't believe that Disney or Pixar will ever top them
0: Well said. Uh, Nicely put. I really don't have anything to add um, other than if you haven't seen these, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen these movies, uh, they are worth checking out regardless of whether or not you have children. Okay, uh, Sean, this has been a a great comeback for me. Um, I've really missed doing this uh, the month that I was off, uh, so... I was glad that we were able to come back and sort of talk about, you know, really sit down, just me and you. Because everyone wants on the show. Everyone wants to come on the show and be a guest or whatever. You know, as I've said, that's fine, but I always enjoy the shows where it's just me and you kicking it around a little bit. So uh, I had a lot of fun talking about this. I should have thought ahead and said it for two hours of live, and, and you know, and then we would have to whole three hours. But, you know, sometimes, uh, what is it, brevity is a soul of wit. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes things are made better by editing, so I guess uh, maybe, maybe that's a sign. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole heap of plugs. We just don't have the time. But Metal Hammer of Doom again returns next week, uh, same time, Tuesdays at nine o'clock Eastern Standard. Uh, myself and Robert Cooper, we will be uh, re- we will be doing a a throwback review of. Um, metallica's saint anger because we came to realize after the ministry review that our best metal hammer of doom are when we hate the album so that'll be fun and then and then two weeks from tonight will be the last metal hammer of doom of 2013 we'll probably do what you know our best and worst of you know robert and i will you know play essentially play some music uh have some fun imitate bane it's what we do And, um, check out my coverage Saturday night of Vitor Belfort versus Dan Henderson to Electric Boogaloo. And, um, aside from the Zillion One podcast on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network that you can find on iTunes and Stitcher, Sean, you've got four minutes. Go. You know what?
1: This has been so perfect. I really don't want to, I feel almost like I'd sullied if I plugged anything of my own. So I'm just going to instead plug other people's stuff. Um, Read Revolution of the Mask. Um, help give Benjamin J. Cologne and uh, Louis Lovehawk some exposure. And by all means, if you're a comic fan at all or somebody who just wants to learn more about comics, go to thatguywiththeglasses.com every week and watch Atop the Fourth Wall. And
0: that's it. Okay. Uh, be back uh, roughly a month from now. Um... This is, unfortunately, the way that it worked out. So we will be, uh, as I said at the top of the show, the next Long Road to Ruin will be December 3rd. We will be looking at Die Hard uh, 1 and 2. And what did we say? 1, 2, and 3 was going to be the first show? 1, 2, and
1: 3 the first show, and then the bad 2 for the second show.
0: Right, okay. So December 3rd, Die Hard 1, 2, and 3. December 10th, Die Hard 4 and 5. And then, uh, finally, the last show of the year, December seventeenth is the Santa Claus trilogy. So with that, die I bid
1: you. Dumb.
0: <laughs> what? what was that?
1: Die Hard, Dumb, and Die Hard Dumber.
0: <laughs> oh boy, well I have a lot to say about those. I haven't seen the Russian <laughs> one yet, so that'll be that'll be fun. All right, so with that, I bid you uh, farewell. Be well, be safe, and behave. wala